obeisances unto him. I offer my respectful obeisances unto all the Vaishnava devotees of the Lord who are just like desire trees, who can fulfill the desires of everyone and are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Radha Shiva Sadi Gaura Pakavinda. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare. So we're continuing in our discussion of Sri Bhakti Aloka, which is a series of essays by Sri Bhakti Thakur on the natural destruction by Rupa Goswami, the second and third verses. It's talking about six things that are favorable for and six things that are not favorable for our practice of devotional service. So um, this text by Rupa Goswami is very practical. It has to do with practice. So just a little bit of review. It's, um, this is a Saturday series of barring special events, like last week we had uh, an English and then a Sanskrit, or Sanskrit and an English, reading of Bhagavad Gita for Gita, Bhagavad Gita's appearance day, Mokshadai Kadashi, but usually on Saturdays we have this, this talk. And it's, it's uh, really aimed for those who want to improve their practice. They have some feeling that they want to actually practice Krishna consciousness, or already are, and want to kind of answer the question, how to do that really well? How to save time? It's a life hack. This book is a life hack from Rupa Goswami, how to actually practice Krishna consciousness the most effectively as possible. So that's basically what's coming from. A little bit of review. We've actually been over in the last few weeks now, the six items that are not favorable for devotional service. I'll just list them so we can remember them. They're listed in text two of the lecture of instruction. So first is overeating or collecting more than is necessary. Two is over-endeavoring for mundane things that are very difficult to obtain. Three, talking unnecessarily about mundane subject matters. Four is either practicing the scriptural rules and regulations <clears throat> without understanding why we're doing it and therefore being attached to the rules for their own sake. Or basically rejecting the rules and regulations. So it's kind of a two for one. It's, a, it's having a relationship with ritual or rule or um, recommended practice that doesn't really include knowledge. Because if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, you'll either stop doing it, which is a problem, or you'll do it ritualistically and it'll be empty, which is also a problem. This is an obstacle, or two obstacles. The fifth is association with worldly-minded persons, materialistically oriented persons, who are not interested in cultivating spiritual life. This is a big problem. The last one listed was being greedy for mundane achievements. So, more or less one per week, we've talked about these six. And now we're on to text three, which lists the six things that are favorable, the positives. And this is one of the major themes we brought out in our discussion. This is very much a kind of open uh, discussion. I'll, I'll be asking questions and taking reflections. I don't really like to have so much of a lecture. I don't find it's that engaging for people. So maybe, David, you can get the second mic ready for us. It's right up there. And anytime anybody has a comment or a question or anything I say that is interesting or you want to reflect on, just raise your hand and that's very much part of the experience. It also helps me. So, yeah, one of the points that we, we, we actually managed to explore in our discussions is that actually uh, all of the negatives are just misapplications of positives. For example, we just heard that associating with 
materialistically minded persons is very much an impediment to our devotional practice. <clears throat> but association with persons is part of what makes persons persons. So it's not something we're advised to stop doing. We just have to find the right persons to associate with. And that becomes, instead of a negative, or at best kind of a neutral experience, into really a positive. And similarly for everything, really, um, the one of the major themes that we're hearing is that actually everything in our life can be used with intelligence. So last week we talked about the first of the six favorable principles for devotional service. It's being enthusiastic. And Srila Prabhupada, who comments in his commentary on Nectar of Instruction, and also Bhaktivinoda Thakur, who comments in his commentary, both talked about this point of um, <clears throat> enthusiasm means actually doing something. They took it to the very practical level of you develop, one develops enthusiasm by actually uh, taking to the practices of devotional service themselves. I, I think I find the words that Bhaktivinoda Thakur used, they were quite powerful. So first he says that enthusiasm is the life of faith. Faith without enthusiasm is meaningless. Many people think they have faith in God, but because they have no enthusiasm, their faith has no meaning. That's pretty heavy. And then he goes on to say that actually the nature of enthusiasm, if I can find it, Right, he quoted from a different Acharya saying that one should not become indifferent, one should not become indifferent to devotional service. And actually, one, according to these Acharyas, means spiritual teachers. One becomes indifferent or apathetic, he also uses the word inertia, to whatever they feel unqualified for. So we have to actually cultivate our sense of relationship to devotional service, that this is actually meant for me. So it's important to actually have an appreciation for, for example, how the processes of devotional service that we're inheriting are very much geared toward us in this day and age. Can anybody tell me what the main process of devotional practices in this movement? Mantra, yeah. Sound. Mantra means from the Sanskrit manas, mind, triate, to free. And primarily using sound actually, to deal with the root cause of our whole problem in the material world, the materialistic mind, or it's the expression of our root cause, which is the false ego. And, and sound vibration, chanting, actually, is, is the main practice we take. And just connecting to this point that one, one who doesn't want to become indifferent to their practice, doesn't want to become apathetic, should actively cultivate a sense of appreciation for the practice that we have. Can anybody think of any advantages to the process of mantra meditation versus other kinds of spiritual practices? What does it have going for it? If you were trying to sell this as a practice to somebody, what are some of the perks to mantra meditation? It's simple. Nice. Can you want to reflect on that a little bit? What's your name, by the way? My name is Shamia Pras. Hi, Laurie. Hi, Laurie. <clears throat> the mantra here is very simple because it's three words. It's three words. It over and over. It's very symmetrical. Yeah. Um, 
It's a little bit, you know, of a different thing language-wise, but I don't think it takes much time to learn three words. If it was a whole book, it may be a little bit complicated. So simple is good, because uh, there are a lot of qualities to this age, but um, ever-increasing complexity is one of the real faults uh, that we're surrounded by. And also, our attention span is decreasing at the same time. This is very much part of the package deal. So sim simple is good. Anything else we can say about mantra meditation? That's a bonus. No hard and fast rules. There are no hard and fast rules. Right, so a hard and fast rule would be something like <clears throat> you have to be physically clean before you can actually engage in such and such practice. So one can chant Hare Krishna having just woken up from a 10 hour snooze. One can chant Hare Krishna in the middle of a thunderstorm. One can chant Hare Krishna in a ditch with mud. <laughs> one can chant Hare Krishna on an airplane where you can't even get clean if you wanted to. It doesn't matter. One can chant the names of God actually are uh, fully accessible. Time, place, and circumstance are no barrier. So hearing about these kinds of things, in other words, glorification of the processes themselves, actually breeds enthusiasm. This was some of what we discussed. I guess it was three weeks ago now because we had Bhagavad Gita and we had a special visiting guest. So picking up now from that, we're going to the second item, which we'll talk about today, nishchaya, which means confidence. Prabhupada also translates it as determination. <clears throat> so, starting with Srila Prabhupada's commentary, he doesn't say so much about this. He says, The successful execution of Krishna consciousness activities requires both patience and confidence. Patience is actually the third item, so he's kind of put the two of them together. And he gives a nice analogy here. A newly married girl naturally expects offspring from her husband, but she cannot expect to have them immediately after marriage. Of course, as soon as she is married, she can attempt to get a child, but she must surrender to her husband, confident that her child will develop and be born in due time. Similarly, in devotional service, surrender means that one has to become confident. The devotee thinks, Avasya Rakshide Krishna, Krishna will surely protect me and give me help for the successful execution of devotional service. This is called confidence. That's more or less all he says on that. So we can reflect on it and we'll also consult with Bhakti Thakur that <clears throat> Prabhupada uses that analogy of you want to have a child, but there's a whole process. And then there's a big waiting period and a lot of energy and time and every different things go into it. So similarly, we're actually gestating, so to speak, uh, the child, the, 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 the pure result of devotional service is love of God, actually. And it takes time. So that's why it's connected to patience. But confidence also means that <clears throat> we don't back away from the process itself and all the things that go into it, including waiting, including purification, different things. We don't back away from it because it may be, at, some, at times, perhaps a little uncomfortable or... It's important, in other words, to actually fortify our confidence in the process. And in order to kind of flesh that out, I checked with Bhakti Thakur, and he really confirmed my feeling on this, that this has a lot to do, therefore, with our confidence in uh, sound, the sound vibrations we're receiving, actually, in these books, in other words. He makes the point that, because basically in spiritual life, he says, okay, all the natures that exist in this world are divided into two. Some are inconceivable and some are conceivable. 
So material natures are conceivable because they automatically awaken in the course of thinking, which means you can kind of figure out some things about the world if you really try for hard enough in terms of the material qualities of the world. You can learn how to use the microphone stand and the microphone, and you can kind of develop the tools to look at what's inside this thing, plastic and metal, and that's all material, and you can do that simply on the strength of one's own force of sense perception and, and kind of logic. It'll take time, but you can. Inconceivable natures cannot be known without self-realization. Therefore, there is no entrance into inconceivable subjects for authorities like direct sense perception. <clears throat> I can see the room with my natural vision, which is just material. I may not have spiritual self-realized vision, but I can see that bookcase and I can see all of you. I can see the artwork on the walls. That's material. But to actually be able to perceive the spiritual quality of, of myself as a soul or other persons, or the spiritual reality behind the world, the ultimate reality, which is actually a person, that is not available for vision, no matter if it's 2020 or 2015. You can't get a pair of eyeglasses that will actually let you see God. Bhaktivinoda Thakur is starting his discussion by making this point. Very logical, yes? So there's two kinds, inconceivable and conceivable. We're dealing with the inconceivable because we're approaching Krishna, the supreme personal truth, who doesn't just give himself away to anybody. So, how do we, how do we know him then? He points out, does Bhaktivinoda Thakur, <clears throat> that you can't perceive it with your senses and you can't understand it just by argument. Because you can have some theory or some argument, but someone else, while you're alive or later on, some other generation is going to defeat that argument with a better one. That's just the nature of, of argument. It's also imperfect. So actually, he makes the point that Krishna is so merciful that he actually reveals himself through his devotees and through scripture. This is what the nature of scripture in the world is. It's actually an unfolding of reality from a place that we can't see with our current senses. And he quotes from the Chaitanya Chaitanya which says that Maya Mukta Jibir Nahi Shvata Krishna Jan. Bewildered by illusion, the living entity cannot on their own understand Krishna. They can't come to him on their own. They don't have the tools of on their own to just build a stairway to heaven, you could say. It's not possible. Jibara Kripaya Koila Krishna Veda Purana. Therefore, Krishna out of his great mercy has compiled the Puranas, the Vedas, Upanishads through Vyasadeva to reveal. Those aspects of reality we can't realize right away, but we can actually realize by hearing and applying in our life. So, in other words, this point of actually determination or confidence really boils down to determination or confidence in the spiritual messages we're receiving, the nature of scripture. And, for example, the idea that there could be something beyond. You know, has anybody ever talked to somebody or maybe even been that kind of person that, you know, <clears throat> Have you ever talked to somebody who you try to explain to them that there could be, maybe there could be like a spiritual reality beyond measurable, material, temporary things that have a beginning and an end. And they simply dismiss the possibility out of hand. Has anybody ever seen that? Or just say, oh, that's, a, that's nonsense, that's a fairy tale. They can't necessarily give any good reason for it. Actually, nobody can because it's not provable or not, or, or prove it. You can't prove it or disprove it. But if somebody's actually convinced that it doesn't exist or couldn't be worth inquiring about, it kind of puts up a big wall, doesn't it, to advance it? Has anybody ever experienced that? Yeah. What's it like? To experience it in another person. Sure. 
A brick wall? It's a brick wall. Yeah, really no way around it. It's a door that's closed and locked from the other side. They have to open it themselves. So, uh, we're not advised to try to open that door from our side. If somebody's completely set on that, that's their business. But the point is that to understand the phenomenon for ourselves, that if, theoretically, potentially, there is God, and if, potentially, He wants us to know Him, being God, by according to the definition of God, He can reveal Himself, because God is all-powerful. That's part of the definition anyone would agree to. He can reveal Himself even to those like, like you and me, who don't have the spiritual vision. We don't have the, the uh, corrective lenses to actually peer into the spiritual reality. He can reveal Himself. That's logical. Now, if He's doing that, He's going to do it through things like Scripture, through things like His own devotees. That's a possibility. So therefore, one who actually has a little bit of consideration in, in this sense, that this might be worth inquiring about, they're attracted to it, they'll start to approach these sources of knowledge, rather than the material sources of knowledge, namely my own senses, and my own consideration of like logic, mental speculation, and calculation. Uh, because as you point out, those, those things won't actually help us spiritually. Um, and when one does approach those sources, one actually starts to hear uh, the messages that one couldn't have invented for themselves. One couldn't have uh, put together the philosophy of Krishna consciousness on one's own. One cannot actually build a bridge from our end to Krishna. But if one practices chanting Hare Krishna with an open mind, one can actually develop determination and develop confidence. Does anybody have any reflections on that point that actually and you, you just joined now, so I just mentioned we're talking about this point of confidence and determination as kind of a, a an item that helps us advance in devotional service. So based on Prabhupada and Bhakti Thakur's discussion on those, we're kind of having a little open kind of talk, um, which we'll go to about 7.45, by the way, 7.10. But I'm thinking, can anybody... <clears throat> Can anybody reflect on how their own experience in practicing Krishna consciousness could be in terms of one's relationship to scripture or in terms of one's relationship to the mantras like Hare Krishna or other bona fide mantras in terms of God or anything else about devotional service? How those experiences have actually um, have passing through that has actually increased our determination and our confidence. Can anybody reflect on that? Yes. I just noticed that um, there was a point in my chanting Japa where I would be chanting and my mind would wander and I'd think, what if this isn't that potent? And I started questioning it more and like, what if this, this Maha Mantra isn't really doing anything for me? And I, I realized the more I, uh, I harbor those thoughts, the farther I get away from the goal, which is like peace of mind and mm -hmm. connecting with the Supreme. And if I just kind of give myself up to it and uh, realize its true power, then, then it uh, reveals itself to me more. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like uh, even while you're chanting, your orientation to the mantra or your practice actually affects how much you get out of it. Totally, yeah. Yeah. I heard a good quote the other day that was, uh, to the degree which you surrender, you beat down your demons. And mm. I really like that. Interesting. 
Yeah, kind of a counterpoint, counterpoint to that is the idea of trying to figure out things is actually the opposite of surrender. Because you're, you're there with your, your intellectual weapons, you're trying to break down that wall between you and spiritual reality. But as Bhagavad Gita points out, and Bhagavad Gita quotes this verse actually in chapter 4, Bhagavad Gita text, I think 40, yeah, he says, Ignorant and faithless persons who doubt the revealed scriptures do not attain God consciousness. They fall down. For the doubting soul, there is happiness neither in this world nor in the next. So, in other words, I mean, doubting is a natural function of the intelligence. It's not that we should feel that there's a problem with us for having doubts. <clears throat> but there is a relationship between our sense of con conviction or certainty, mature conviction, not just immaturely accepting something blindly, but that sense of mature conviction actually translates to results in practice, tangible results. One can actually realize their own spiritual nature. One will actually realize Krishna by that practice performed with conviction. So it's an interesting kind of situation. If you approach a practice without any confidence at all, it's very difficult to get realization. And without realization, you don't have confidence. So something has to kind of like light that fire. You know, something has to come from outside and put a spark on the dry wood. We can make the wood dry. We can kind of like work on our own situation, not being overly mental, appreciating it could be a spiritual source that's worth inquiring about. But there has to be that spark. So, um, Prabhupada and Bhaktivinoda Thakur are pointing out that that spark is actually hearing from scripture and hearing from persons who are following scripture. This is a universal thing in any tradition. There are actually revealed scriptures on the planet. Several of them. This is God's business. He's trying to reveal himself to us all the time. And because there are scriptures, some persons are following them. And therefore, they're actually embodiments of those scriptures themselves. They become proof of it. So, Bhatino Tagore points out, there's the actual sound vibration coming from the spiritual world, and there's the persons who actually echo it and reflect it back and apply it according to the time, place, and circumstance they and their audience live in. And they also apply it in themselves and become living examples of the truth of it. And both are very much necessary. So, Bhatino Tagore goes on. Actually, he gives quite a detailed analysis of the ten aspects of reality called Dashamula, which, I mean, I'll summarize by saying seven have to do with the nature of reality. What are the living entities? What is God? What is the material world? Like that. Um, one has to do with the process of connection to the Supreme Reality, in other words, devotional service. And one has to do with the goal, love of God. And the, other, the last one has to do with uh, what's called as a chintya beta beta tattva. Anyway, this is rather philosophical and it goes on for several pages, but it's this expansion on, on this point that actually there are principles behind philosophy that we actually have to hear about. For example, it's a very fundamental principle of our and actually every devotional philosophy that we you, myself, everybody who's hearing this, except for Krishna, is actually a servant of God. That's actually our nature. This is a very fundamental point of philosophy with tremendous applicability. There's so many things you can do based on that. Can anybody think of other points of philosophy that we actually hear from the gurus and teachers, and devotees and the scriptures that actually are formed like a foundation to what we do and how we move in the world? 
They're the kinds of things that are repeated over and over again. They're the kinds of things that are very foundational to how we look at ourselves in the world. We're not the body. Yeah, that's a really big one. It's good to hear that because there's a lot of propaganda going out there that we are the body. A lot of people can make a lot of money off of us, trying to feed us and get us to gratify different senses and their pushings based on the idea that we are the body. But we're not. We're actually a spirit soul servant of God. So one can hear that and appreciate it to some extent, and then one has to practice it. Practice not being the body. There's, a, there's kind of intellectually accepting that I'm not the body, I'm actually a servant of God. And then there's acting like that. And this is where things get real, actually. This is the bridge between the academic or theoretical appreciation of scripture or saintly persons and actually becoming convinced, actually dealing with one's doubts, not stuffing them away, not ignoring them, not making it not okay to not have doubts. No, actually dealing with them, answering them, right? This is the, the, the bridge between having, not having confidence or determination and having it, really, in a mature way, is putting into practice what the scripture says, which is absolutely the point of this whole series of talks, is practice. So there are certain fundamental things we hear from scripture. Mother Nature gave us probably the most common one that Prabhupada and, and the scriptures are giving us. Dear living entity, you are not your body. You're actually an eternal spirit soul. You do not have, you did not have a beginning. You do not have an end. You're eternally existing and you're part of God and you're his devotee, his servant. So that's, aside from being interesting and very true, there's a, there's a lot that goes into actually practicing that in one's life. For example, this is where we can reflect. Can anybody give some ideas or examples on how one may hear that they're not the body and that they're a servant of God and how to actually live like that? Really like practical things. How does somebody who thinks that they're a devotee of God or maybe trying to run the experiment, maybe I'm a devotee of God, maybe I'm not my body. How would they do that? What's the experiment look like? What would they actually change from how they used to live? Maybe instead of living for sense enjoyment, they uh, uh, attribute everything in their life to God or Krishna and, and uh, give thanks for that. Okay. Gratitude. Just blindly consume. Gratitude. That's an interesting point. Yeah, you can't be grateful unless there's someone to be grateful towards. It's, a, it's an emotion. It's based on a relationship. And we're being provided certain things. If, the, if we're being provided certain things, even material things like, you know, the food and the clothes that I wear, um, if they're coming from like a blind force, like, like, you know, the force of nature, but there's no person behind it, you can't actually feel gratitude. It's, it's just a chance. It's by chance of, I, I happen to have been born at a time where I could actually afford to put clothes on my body and not, you know, freeze in this Denver weather. But, so what? But if we actually start to appreciate that there could be a person behind that, then you get things like gratitude. That's definitely a practical thing. Actually, this is, I forget where we found this, but we heard it maybe in the, in the Madhuri Kanamani, but Bhaktivedanta Thakur was saying gratitude is the beginning of devotional practice, actually. But no? Can you get the mic? In one and a half seconds. Oh, yes. Thank you. It's not on. The question is, what would, how would someone act if they're a devotee? Yeah, how would someone act if they were trying to, trying to be a devotee? 
even if they're not convinced yet, like how, how does one actually move in the world as if they're not the body? Yeah, I was, well, I was just thinking it because you said if, if one is trying to be a devotee of the Lord, then they would do what the Lord says. Oh, they would do, you know, if you're devoted to someone, you're going to do what they ask. Nice. So they, a devotee figures out what Krishna wants and then they, they do it. Yeah. Practical. And, um, you know, when I think of that, I think there's, again, there's two ways of looking at that. As you're often out with these kinds of things. One is very much like, kind of, okay, there's these rules that I have to follow, otherwise, you know, bad things can happen to me. And the other one is more based on a place like what Brandon was talking about, gratitude. If, we're, if, if there is a God, and if he's trying to reveal himself, and if he can reveal himself, and if I'm eligible to actually have him revealed to me, and if I want that, right? This is the making a fertile ground for the seed of devotional services. All these ifs are answered. Okay, then what? Then, then we can say, it's his right, it's his prerogative to actually reveal what he wants or prefers. I mean, I have preferences. You know, there are certain things I like and don't like. I'm a very limited person, but I have, I have preferences. There are certain standards that I appreciate. Um, why not Krishna, if there's a person behind everything? So what does he say for himself? This is actually a function of somebody who wants to who wants to be a devotee, or wants to explore the possibility that they could be a devotee. Maybe this is true, maybe I'm a devotee. Well, what does Krishna have to say about what I should do? And, and what he's like, and what's, what my priorities could be. And then hearing those things, that's, uh, that's something that one can do. Going out of one's way to hear them. This is a symptom of, of, uh, of somebody who wants to develop determination. Because you get determination and confidence by putting things into practice. And we don't really know what to put into practice until we hear about the practice itself. You know, we don't, nobody invented the chanting of Hare Krishna. Nobody invented these scriptures. Um, of course, the, the, the potential for devotional service is there in anybody. Anybody can pray. Children pray. Uh, people pray in the most unlikely of situations. It's a natural function of the soul to reach out to God. But to actually really understand devotional service and go out of one's way to put oneself in touch with it, be around devotees here, that's something one has a choice over, and, and making that choice actually puts one in a situation that can build their confidence. You know, because then when you hear those messages, and you apply them, then you get the results. Otherwise, it's kind of incidental contact, you know? There are some people who move through the world, and like, they're like, yeah, maybe there's God, maybe not. Anyway, I have a lot of work to do, I'm pretty busy right now. And sometimes they'll hear things about God, and devotional practice, and sometimes they won't. It just depends who they're around, by chance. But they won't go out of their way to come to this center or that center or practice at home or pray or meditate or, or read. They won't really go out of their way. So there's kind of some incidental contact in the world. These different forces come in touch with them. But for somebody who wants these things, they'll quickly develop confidence and determination, which the other category of person lacks, because they actually go out of their way to be in touch with the sound vibration, with hearing Krishna's desires and his priorities. Yeah. Anything else that one you guys can think of that if I asked you how do you how do you live? How does someone live if they think they're not their body or if they, they want to not they want to be a spiritual being? What kind of things can they do to run that experiment? Do you want to do you want the microphone? I think it's right behind it actually over there. Uh, 
street green money. Um, for me, spiritual practice began with yoga and bringing my body to my mat so that I could focus all of my intention and my attention on developing my highest consciousness. Hmm. It shifted over time and now for me, um, it's like this body is not mine, so I'm asking permission for everything I do, right? Wow. Interesting. And everything I do is actually onto Krishna or God. So your every action, your every thought is held subject to that standard of am I serving or am I not? Hmm. You're just looking for that um, highest, highest level in your actions, in your attitudes and interactions. Nice. So if I could take a few kind of like summary bullet points out of what you said, I think one would be introspection, being introspective. And another one is, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, your practice started with um, yoga, asanas, and pranayama, you know, so being on the mat and being, bring all of the resources to bear in terms of like concentration. So that's an interesting point because it relates to a lot of what you've been hearing about things that are unfavorable. Uh, includes a lot of distractions. And somebody who wants to actually become confident and advance endeavor with confidence and determination can do something by actually eliminating distractions. So yoga asana practice is an example of something that's been handed down to us as a very practical way to focus the mind and body and be able to come to a point of actually dedicating one's attention ultimately to Krishna, to God. And uh, that attention is a very powerful commodity. And there are a lot of forces out there that are trying to grab our attention. So we live in a culture that, I mean, you can't get away from it. It's actually what we are. We're actually little units of attention. And all the different economic forces and emotional and social forces and psychological and educational for everyone, all these things and people want a piece of our attention. And due to just inertia in this world, being in the world, we've actually been splayed out in so many different directions all the time. That's the nature of the mind. It's very, very short attention span very splayed out. And so yoga or any other bona fide uh, practice that brings us as a preliminary helps to actually focus the mind and help the body become uh, healthy enough that one doesn't become distracted by it. One has one's physical needs met and doesn't have extraneous needs, false needs. And therefore they have a very sharp instrument with which to actually pay attention to the mantra or the spiritual messages or the devotees because they're more present, they're more in the mode of goodness, they're less thinking about the past, lamenting, or wondering about the future and hoping and fearing and desiring, you know. That's not where the mind is at. The mind is able to be present. So that's a, that's a really practical thing. Thank you. And then again, you made that point of uh, asking permission, which is all a very practical thing. And rather than kind of independently acting in our life, devotees actually have this. They actually have this feeling of, okay, Krishna, you're with me. You're seeing my actions, you know, is this right? You know, and there's that, that, that inner dialogue is going on. And it's very much a dialogue one does hear back from Krishna, different situations, uh, either directly in the heart or through other persons, devotees and so forth, when we're hearing the messages that what we need to hear to advance. So, thank you. Any more reflections on this question or point from the point? Yes, Mother Nidra. Great. <coughs>
next to this, though, I was just thinking how uh, we want to uh, see everyone as part and parcel of Krishna, you know, eternal beings, mm. spirit souls, and, you know, not the us and them, or my family, your family, your country, my country, you know, just like in terms of designations, you know, this designation, that designation. We're trying to see, you know, have relationships and vision in terms of um, everyone as eternal spirit souls, parts and parcel. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So that can be, um, at first, that can be like an intellectual process that we kind of have to practice doing. You know, I mean, by conditioning in this world and in our material consciousness, internal life, we're very much attached to our designations. Somebody thinks they're a man and they're really convinced about it. Someone else thinks they're a woman. Or anything in between. Exactly the point is that whatever we identify with, we identify with very strongly as, a, as a, um, a function of like our identity, you know? And this is who I am, this is part of what I, you know, I mean and what matters to me. And those, those designations are very much external. One starts to see that and appreciate that actually the way I've been identifying according to you know, language or skin color is very actually external. There's much more to me than that. One enters kind of the, the emotional or, or intellectual platform, and then from there we can see that actually beyond my ideas, beyond my affiliations intellectually, there's also deeper than that. There's my spiritual identity as a servant. And one will start to practice challenging their own mind when their mind starts to look at the world in terms of us and them, you know, partisanship, sectarian thought. That's what the mind does when it's, we're conditioned. So at first we practice doing that, and then it becomes very much our own uh, real nature uh, to actually see the world, our own self and other persons, as belonging to Krishna, belonging to God, and therefore uh, all operating as part of one spiritual reality. And that's how Krishna wants us to look at it. He says that over and over again in the Bhagavad Gita and all the other scriptures of the world, that anybody who can actually appreciate, I mean, just off the top of my head, the Bible says that whatsoever one does to one, the least of one's brother, one does unto me, says the Lord. This is just a very fundamental thing. God wants us to actually be able to deal with others as if they belong to Him, because they do. And first by practice, and then actually by culture and, and realization, one can come to that. And it's a, it's a real paradigm shift. It's a real paradigm shift. And you find that more, more and more people these days are starting to challenge their designations. They're starting to challenge the party lines that they were born into or their own family and, and, and circumstances actually have tried to convince them about that, oh, maybe it's not all just about this country. Maybe other countries are also full of valuable people. Or maybe it's not just all about my political ideas or this, that thing. And they start to look beyond that. This is a function of an expanding consciousness. And devotees go out of their way to actually expand their consciousness to its highest limit. That actually, I, you, me, everybody, even the inanimate objects in the world are all coming from God. And they, they do like that. And by doing that, actually, one has a different experience as a human being. I think we all have that, that realization that when we start to walk and live in the world and treat other people as if they are spiritual, our experience of dealing with them becomes very different. Our experience of actually moving in the world and having thoughts and desires is a very different thing when one is uh, unburdened from uh, dualistic, sectarian thinking. 
when one is thinking about others as a spiritual spiritual entities. Isn't, isn't that so? It's not just me, right? I see a lot of nodding. So that's, that's its own kind of realization. I know for myself, one of the things that I really liked about Bhagavad Gita when I was first reading it would have been, oh, nine years ago now, almost ten, <coughs> was uh, that the more I read it, I didn't understand much of it, most of it. It was so over my head. It was so deep. And I couldn't understand how Prabhupada was so convinced about everything he was saying. I was like, how does he know all these things? But just reading it over and over again, I had this kind of like cumulative sense in my heart that by reading this, I'm actually developing more appreciation for other traditions. I could actually see how other traditions and other perspectives and other practices in other languages and other times were talking about the same basic message about Bhagavad Gita. And I could appreciate them more in the light that the Bhagavad Gita was casting for me. And when that happened, and I realized that was happening, that to me was a huge sign that this is a, a real process. Because otherwise, one becomes sectarian. It's very easy to become sectarian. You can brainwash any weak-minded person to believe anything. Any, all kind of nonsense you can get them to believe. And as soon as they believe that, anything, anything that runs against it is just their enemy. That's really easy to do. It's much more difficult to find the, the common truths in things, right? You have to feed somebody lies to, to make them into a, a sectarian. But to actually make someone be able to appreciate others, you have to find a common truth. So I knew that Bhagavad Gita was giving truth. And I could see that my own relationship with other traditions and processes was actually um, becoming more uh, respectful and inquisitive. And uh, I was getting realization, oh, this is what Lord Jesus Christ meant. This is what Muhammad the Prophet meant. This is what the Buddha meant. You know, this is what, how it connects to what Prabhupada and Krishna are saying. And that increased my determination. And that increased my confidence. You see? So that, in other words, by, by practicing what Mother Nidra is saying, one has a visceral kind of deeper sense of, oh, something's happening. I'm actually becoming less angry. Or, or uh, you know, whatever one may have had that's kind of a, a, a boundary, a, a, a barrier to, to advancing. One loses those things and develops better qualities. And when one sees that, oh, this is, this is working. This Bhagavad Gita is for real. This Hare Krishna mantra is for real. This eating sanctified foodstuffs thing, that's for real. One confidence, you just level up. You're, you get a level up in confidence and uh, determination. This is the, this is the, the actual um, Playground, the actual like living, uh, what's the word? This is where the, this is where the the rubber hits the road, as they say. This is where advancement is actually made. When we take the principles that Bhagavad Gita or Prabhupada or anybody bona fide is giving, and we try to like, okay, you know, let's say I am not my body. What next? Well, Krishna's saying I should treat people as if they belong to him. Okay, I'll try that. You try to practice it. And then you get some confidence because it does work. It actually really works. It works in every language. Anybody in the world at any time who's ever tried treating other people as if they belong to God has had this experience. It, it actually liberates you. Anybody who's tried being grateful or asking God for permission or trying to know, as the Lord said, what does God actually want has experienced what that does in one's life. So, again, the major theme we're getting here again is that Devotional life is a series of choices, it's a series of actual experiences.
We get so many messages and ideas come to us from these books, from these teachers, and it's up to us to actually try to practice it and get the experience that Krishna wants us to have. Krishna wants us to become experienced. It's like the Jimi Hendrix album, Are You Experienced? This is what the Lord wants. He wants us to become experienced. So, Bhaktivinoda Thakur concludes, with 10 minutes left, he just concludes by pointing out that what these principles of knowledge are that the scripture is giving, like the kind of fundamental things I'm listing now, and we're not our bodies, everyone belongs to God. I won't go through all 10, but you can look at them on your own if you want, we can talk to you about it later. And he just makes this concluding point that actually determination for practice, confidence in practice really means determination and confidence in the messages of scripture and, and the saints. And so, whatever kind of stands as an obstacle to those things, whatever may be in our hearts, and there are certainly things that are obstacles to having appreciation for the messages of the saintly persons, and the messages of scriptures, those obstacles are things that we should actively try to deal with. Because to the extent that we can actually clear that road, to actually be able to take in the messages and hear them attentively, without distraction, hear them without envy or anger or fear or any of these other emotional reactions one may have to spiritual messages or spiritual authorities. These are definitely part of what's like. It's like to be a conditioned soul. As much as we can get rid of these obstacles and put ourselves in touch with these things, that itself will actually lead to an increase of confidence and determination. That's basically whatever I could find on these points of confidence and determination based on Prabhupada Bhaktivinoda and originally Rupa Goswami. So now we can just reflect back or ask questions or kind of churn some more. If anybody had anything they heard me just say or anyone else say that they thought was interesting or if they want to ask a question or reflect on this point of confidence, determination, some of the things that we talked about. Now is the floor is open. Maybe you could say something about uh, determination. Um, how, because of previous uh, bad habits and sense gratification, one's determination may not be very steadfast. Mm. So um, maybe things you could say something about trying to uh, make it steady more and strong. You know. At, it's like so much weakness is there yeah. in the past bad habits. Yeah. Well, the first thing, thank you. The first thing I always like to start with is when dealing with these practical things that deal with, you know, touch on our own past habits and our shortcomings, is to point out that we're not alone. Krishna knows. He's made it crystal clear. He knows and he understands that there are different kinds of determination. He says this in the 18th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. If I can find it, I haven't studied the 18th chapter in a while. If I can find it, it would be great. Aha! Here it is. Chapter 18. Text 33, 34, and 35. He talks about Krishna's levels of determination. First, no mode of goodness. That determination which is unbreakable, which is sustained with steadfastness by yoga practice, and which controls the mind, Activities of the mind, life, and senses is determination in the mode of goodness. Sometimes we may experience that for some 
period of time. I'm like really steadfast and resolute. And uh, what else? My mind is controlled. My senses are controlled. If you've ever experienced that, that's actually in the mode of goodness. There are three primary modes or modalities to the world. In the mode of passion, one is determined by being attached to the results of their activities, the material results. Like, I'll go to, I'll go to work because I want to make money. I'm really thinking what I'm going to do with the money, and therefore I go to work. I'm determined to be a worker because I, I want that stereo system or whatever, right? And so those results in terms of religious practice or economic development or sense gratification, those motivate somebody who's determined in, 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 in passion. In ignorance, determination can't go beyond dreaming or fearfulness or lamentation or moroseness and, and illusion. There's a lot of uh, procrastination. Um, one thinks, of, I should probably do that, but they don't actually do it. <laughs> They're not determined. So that's the first point I want to make is that any situation we find ourselves up against, Krishna already knows about it. And there's billions and billions of countless living entities who are also dealing with it right now. It's not just me. So that, that helps. I mean, there's a whole book here that Krishna has written for persons like you and me who are sometimes lamenting and morose and procrastinating. He knows. It's just a mode of ignorance. He's seen it a billion times. We've, actually, we've seen it a billion times. So many lifetimes. So that takes a lot of the edge off of it. It's not personal, it's not, I'm not broken, it's not just me. So the question was what to do about that, right? So, um, one thing is this, that the longer one sticks with the process of devotional service, the more one starts to see their lifestyle start to shift. Because these kinds of things have to do with the modes of nature, anything we do in our life that affects our relationship with the modes of, of nature will affect our ability to be determined or not determined. Like you're saying, sometimes we're like, okay, from, from bad habit, you know, I just, I really have this like lazy streak and I procrastinate all the time. And I, I, I for me, like I, I did that actually growing up because I didn't have to work hard in school because I have a kind of intelligence that didn't get challenged in a lot of my classes. So I just developed a really bad work ethic. So <laughs> that was actually really bad for me. Uh, I didn't have to work hard, so I never learned how to work hard. Uh, it's, it's a habit I had to overcome. Even before I came to Krishna consciousness, it's, just, it's not going to get you anywhere in life to be lazy. So, if I see that, uh, then that's in the mode of ignorance. So, as much as I am not in touch with the mode of ignorance, I'm in touch with higher modes, preferably goodness, to that extent, that, that'll start to go away. For example, when I started to go vegetarian, my relationship with the modes of nature became more shifted toward goodness. Because eating dead flesh puts you in ignorance. It's just the way the world works. Nothing personal. It just, it just is. You know, eating corpses is a bad idea. It actually makes you lazy and not determined in other things. And I noticed that when I changed my diet. It was easier to be determined when I wasn't eating meat. So that's a very kind of gross example in the sense that it's not particularly subtle. Most persons here are all, a lot of, I mean, all serious practitioners are not eating meat or are on their way to, to giving up meat. Um, but there are other more subtle things we can do to regulate our sleeping and our eating and our association and our, you know, like relationship to mass media and our dealing with other persons, our communication habits, all these things affect our relationship with the mode. So if we have a nice lifestyle, the mode of goodness, rising early, going to bed early, eating regulated, not overeating, not undereating, uh, 
we're not, we don't have habits that create a lot of anxiety and stress and a lot of passion or moroseness and lamentation and a lot of ignorance. That itself actually will help us become more determined for our devotional practice. It's like a computer, right? I don't know if anyone here is on the computers, but there's a certain amount of memory you have, and if all your memory is being used by background programs, it's a very slow and clunky computer. It can't do anything practically. It's just like always taking forever to load up. So if my subtle body, my mind, is polluted with all these previous activities and impressions, it's very difficult to work up the energy and presence to really be, you know, um, present and, and have a lot of gumption for my Krishna Bhakti, my chanting of Hare Krishna, or I can't get it together to come to the temple, or whatever it may be. But when one starts to deal with my, the relationship one has with the mode of ignorance, and say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to live in this way anymore. I'm not going to sleep in until 11 o'clock in the morning. Because it actually it ruins my ability to be determined for the rest of the day. I'm going to wake up early and, and, and go to bed early. These kinds of lifestyle things, actually, it actually helps. It makes a, a, a cumulative effect. There's a difference that it, it makes. And then in terms of practicing itself, you know, chanting and reading all the core practices, that's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Um, and then when one looks back on how they have advanced, then one increases their confidence that they'll continue to advance. And when one sees others who are more advanced, then they can think, wow, that, that's really determined. I want to be like that person. That person is just like shot out of a cannon seven days a week. I want to be like that. It's possible. I see they're doing it, so it must be possible for me too. So that association and that practice over time helps. And then also purifying our, our, our modes of nature. And, and the first point I made is, of course, not getting super lamenting and, and beating up on our, ourselves. Because after all, Krishna knows, and he's trying to help us, and it's, it's really old news. It's not. No one should be surprised that they're polluted by the modes of nature. Thank you. It's 7.45. If anyone has anything quick, we can take any comment, question, reflection. Otherwise, in a matter of seconds, we're going to see the Lord, whether we're qualified to or not. <laughs> and thank you very much, Hare Krishna. So, I don't think there's anything that would prevent this Saturday class from happening next Saturday. So, Saturday is at 6.30. Uh, see you then. Hare Krishna. If anybody would like a copy of the Nectar of Instruction, which is a very core text, it's a very small one, it's only like 95 pages. 91. We, I'm pretty sure we do. And if we don't, I can run over to the Brahmacharya Ashram and get some. Uh, we don't even sell them, we take donations. And it's very practical, especially the first eight verses are super practical. Uh, you just let my know on myself. Right, sure.